Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. La Trobe, Asia has recently released a new issue of the La Trobe, Asia Brief, looking at the relationship between Australia and China and the challenges it presents. With me today is one of the contributing authors, Hugh White. Hugh is an Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University, a respected scholar in defence policy and security issues, and the author of a number of books, including The China Choice, and most recently, How to Defend Australia, published by La Trobe University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh. Nice to be with you, Matt. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, welcome back to Melbourne. Uh, nice to be back again here, my hometown. Yes, yes, and uh, I hope you are enjoying your uh, your book tours slash launches slash multitude of interviews. Yeah, well, it's been fairly intense over the last little while, but it's always nice to see people paying attention and uh, taking an interest in the ideas. My first question that I wanted to leap into is uh, how has the perception of your book been with China? Because when you talk about how to defend Australia, I, I hate to call them out, but the biggest thing that you need to defend against at the moment would come to China as being the first thing to come to mind. Well, that's that's right. Certainly, China is a very big part of the of the picture. It's important to stress that it's not by any means the only focus. And mm. in the book itself, I do try and talk more generally about the need for Australia to think about how it would defend itself against Asian major powers in general. And it could include India in the future or Indonesia. I also make the point that I don't see that China today threatens Australia, but I do see that uh, there's a possibility that China, as it evolves in future, will become both more powerful and influential. And if it starts to try to use that power and influence in really assertive or even aggressive ways, then it could pose that kind of a threat in future. So, And understandably, that's not necessarily a, a message that people in China welcome. The Global Times did uh, describe the book as being another uh, example of the China threat scenario, which mm. no, they regard as, uh, by definition, stupid. But look, I think overall, most serious Chinese analysts, and for that matter, I think Beijing itself, would recognise that it would be quite natural for Australia to have the kinds of conversations we're having, or I think we should be having, about what it's going to mean for Australia to live in an Asia in which, as they clearly intend, they will be much more powerful and our traditional allies, and America most obviously, will be significantly less powerful. So they might not like the fact that we're having this conversation, but they can't be surprised by it. And at any rate, you know, this is a conversation we have to have whether the Chinese like it or not. Uh, in the end, it is a book that's directed primarily at Australians. It's an attempt to contribute to and I hope stimulate a conversation in Australia about the military aspects of how Australia responds to the very different Asia of coming decades. There are other aspects, of course, diplomacy as well, but my book focuses on the military aspects, and I would be surprised if the Chinese were surprised or even particularly disconcerted by the fact that we're having this kind of conversation. Mm. Your book focuses on a military aspect, but there's a lot of different ways that we interact with China. We've, yes. uh, we've got business, we've got tourism and trade, we've got a, some would say, too heavily reliant university sector that relies on Chinese students. So where do you see a threat coming from outside of defence or do you see it all as being areas of concern? No, look, I do think one of the things we're going to learn to have to learn to live with and adapt to and work within is a relationship with China, which is in many ways going to be more complex and more difficult to manage than any relationship we've had before. And the reason for that is very simple. That is, Australia has never 
encountered a country which is more important to Australia on more dimensions of our national life than China is today and will increasingly be in future. So exactly as you say, it's a huge trading partner. It's a very important investment partner. It's an important source of future of tourism, of students and so on. It's also, of course, China and the Chinese world is an increasingly important source of Australians, you know, of growing population of Australian citizens of, of Chinese extraction. So this is a very important part of our national life. And yet China is not an ally and in the broader sense is not really a friend. It's just a country we're doing business with. And by doing business, I don't just mean as a customer and so on, but it, it's a country we have to interact with on a whole lot of different levels. Now, many of those will be very positive. And our aim, of course, should be to amplify the positives. And that's why I say I don't by any means take the view that China's rise is a big threat to Australia that we have to be frightened of. But we do have to recognise that amidst all the positives that flow from the rise of China and what that the opportunities that's given Australia, it does have a very significant and potentially destabilising effect on the Asian strategic order. And it has a very significant impact on America's capacity to continue to play that role of great and powerful friend as security guarantor that we've got used to America playing for so many decades in the past. I think we just have to get used to the fact that when we're dealing with China, we're going to be dealing with a country which is going to be very important and very beneficial in some ways. And potentially in the future, depending on how it evolves, quite threatening in others. And if that seems a bit confusing, well, welcome to the Asian century. That's what it's going to be like. Nothing's going to be simple for us. You said that Australian defence policy and strategy has been very reliant in the past on the US presence, uh, the US being the guide and at the forefront of keeping China in balance. But that's changing. In some ways, you could say that it's already changed in the other way, depending on how you want to look at things. So where do you weigh in on that? Yeah, look, it's a really central issue. Right at the heart of my analysis is the view that America will no longer play the same role in Asia or the same role in Australia's security as we've been used to for a long time. And because our defence policy, as well as our broader foreign policy, has for so long assumed both that America will prevent any serious threat to Australia arising, and then if that for some reason fails, will defend us from that threat if it does. That confidence, that double confidence we've had in American power and resolve, both as a stabilising force in Asia as a, as a whole and as a specific ally for Australia itself, as that confidence declines, the need for us to do more for ourselves, the need for us to have a more independent strategic posture in Asia and a more independent military posture in Asia seems to me to grow. And I don't say that on the basis that I like the idea of American leadership Mm. and primacy in Asia failing. In fact, I don't like it. I think America's power in Asia has been extremely beneficial for Australia and for the region as a whole. But when I see the relative wealth between America and China moving very strongly China's way, when I see the chances of that being reversed by disturbances in China, either economic or political, as being quite low, I think the chances of China ending up as a much more significant economy than America's is the one we have to really focus on. And with the best will in the world, that's going to mean that as the wealth shifts, the power shifts, and America will find it extremely hard to preserve its position in Asia as it confronts a country as powerful as China, which is, you know, in one way of putting it, China's economic weight is going to make China the most formidable strategic rival the United States has ever faced. I myself think that Australia simply cannot rely on America to be able or willing to preserve its leadership role in Asia and therefore that very significant contribution is made to our security when the costs and risks of doing so against a country of as powerful as China in the future mm. rises, I think they will. 
And the last point to make there is that when we think about these issues, it's very tempting for us to think about the world as we know it today. And to think, well, you know, today America is still a significant player in Asia and China is obviously ambitious and pushing back, but the Americans are still here. We have to ask ourselves, where should we prudently expect that to be in 30 or 40 years' time? Because in the defence field, the choices we make today and over the next few years will determine the kinds of armed forces we have 30 or 40 years from now. So if we think there's a significant chance that America will be playing a less significant role in those future decades, we have to adapt to that now. And it's that capacity to recognise the trends that are underway, to make a prudent judgement about where those trends are going and to start responding to those trends now, which is at the core of getting our future in the Asian century right. Okay, I want to throw a couple of scenarios at you if I can. Uh, Just say that China or any other country decides that they want to make a move on Australia. Do you believe that the United States, perhaps separately other allies in Europe, would have our back? Do you believe that Space Force would come and and save us and, you know... Look, it's a really important question, and it's, it's a very difficult question for Australians to get their heads around because as a country, you might say as a society, we have this very deeply uh, embedded uh, enthusiasm for alliances and faith in alliances. We, you know, we really do think that alliances are the natural way to go. But in fact, for most countries through most of their history, alliances have been at best extremely unreliable. And that's actually been true for Australia as well. Mm. At critical times, for example, with the fall of Singapore, Um, when the British fail to come to our aid, you know, our alliances have failed us. I don't think our confidence that we can rely on the United States in all scenarios or anybody else in all scenarios is really very well based in history. But it is nonetheless still very hard for us to contemplate what it would be like to stand by ourselves. So I keep on finding in my discussion and conversations with people about this that there is a kind of a determination to believe that either America or someone else will come to our aid. Now, I don't rule it out as a possibility. It depends a lot on the circumstances, but what I would say is that the more powerful China becomes relative to the United States, the higher the cost of the United States of coming to our assistance against China, Mm. and the less likely the United States would be to do so. That's a kind of a very simple reflection of the underlying mechanics of shifting geopolitics. So it comes down to essentially a country thinking, what's the threat to us or what is the cost to us in defending Australia? That's exactly right. A country a long way from us. And really, if the enemy's focused on them, they're not focused on us. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, in the end, alliances are all about uh, being instruments whereby countries serve their own interests. So if it's in America's interest to support Australia in a conflict with China or anybody else, then it will come to our aid. It will only come to our aid if the scale of those interests, the intensity, the magnitude of those interests outweighs the costs of coming to our assistance. I think it'd be very unwise for Australia to assume that America's interest in Australia's security would be strong enough to outweigh the costs of taking on a country as powerful as China will be 20 or 30 or 40 years from now. That's a very sobering thought considering how much we bank on them being there. so It is very sobering. That's right. How can Australia be more proactive than in its defence, which I suppose is well, that's, uh, that's, the second half that, of your book? That's really, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. That's really what the book is all about. And it's a great puzzle because, you know, forever really, Australians have simply assumed that we can't defend ourselves independently. Mm. And one of the reasons why we have this great emotional attachment to alliances is a very strong sense that we don't have any alternative that if we don't have a great and powerful friend, we're essentially defenceless. So I really set out in the book to try and just test that hypothesis and say, well, let's give ourselves a blank whiteboard and ask ourselves, well, can we defend ourselves independently against a major Asian power? 
And that's a question that needs to be refined a bit. You've got to think a bit about exactly what kind of outcomes you're trying to achieve. But what I aim to do in the book is to build up quite systematically a set of judgments about what do we really need our armed forces to be able to do, what kind of military operations would best achieve those strategic objectives, what kind of capabilities would best achieve those operational outcomes, Mm. how much would they cost. And then you ask yourself, okay, can we make this work? Now, the conclusion I reach tentatively, because there are some big questions remaining, but the tentative conclusion I reach is we can defend ourselves independently from a major Asian power, but we'd need to build a very different kind of defence force than the one we're building at the moment, designed to undertake very different kinds of operations, and we'd need to spend a lot more money on it, both to buy the stuff and to maintain the capabilities as such, but also to build a supporting infrastructure so that those capabilities could keep fighting in a conflict. Now, it's a in some ways a reassuring conclusion, we can do it, but it's also a bit challenging because it would be very difficult and it would cost us a lot of money Mm -hmm. and it's a big choice for Australia as to whether we should in the long run spend that extra money, undertake that big national project in order to give ourselves the capacity to defend ourselves independently or on the other hand just say, look, we don't think the risk is high enough. We look 20 or 30 years into the future, 40 years into the future, We don't think the risk of China or any other great power challenging us is big enough to warrant spending that money. It's a kind of classic gamble. Because the money is so so big, I'm talking about spending an extra $30 billion on defence on top of the $40 billion we're already spending. That's not unaffordable for Australia. Australia as a country could afford that. But the opportunity cost would be very big. That would be $30 billion that we wouldn't be spending on infrastructure or health or welfare or education. And we shouldn't do that lightly, nor should we simply assume that by continuing to spend the kind of money we're spending at the moment, we're going to remain as secure in future as, secure in future as we are today, because that uh, defence posture only makes sense on the assumption that we have a very great and powerful friend, a very powerful ally in America, keeping Asia stable and keeping Australia safe. And I don't think that's an assumption we can make. A couple of things then that could maybe, you say it's a gamble, put the odds more in our favour if we saw there being the possibility of a threat. How about, is there a way that we could make ourselves less of a threat, perhaps being less antagonistic as we are towards China, maybe sign the Belt and Road Initiative, what's it going to hurt? Uh, I'm not saying that we should, I'm just saying, you know, these are lines of thought that you could have. Maybe, you know, give Huawei a bit of a break. Do you think we're too antagonistic towards China? It's a really good question because obviously, to what extent China ends up threatening Australia in the future militarily doesn't just depend on China, it also depends on us. Mm. And it would be quite possible for us to reduce the risk very significantly by simply doing what the Chinese want. There's an argument that says that would be the smart thing for Australia to do. And in fact, that's what small powers tend to do. I mean, if we think of the world divided between great powers, middle powers and small powers, a very big part of international affairs is small powers making a decision that because they can't stand up to great powers, they'll go along with them. I think to some extent, Australia will do that. To some extent, Australia's already doing that. We're already accommodating ourselves to the fact that China is much more powerful, much more influential than any Asian country has ever been before, and we're inclined to become more accommodating to what China wants as a result, and I don't think that's wrong necessarily. The question for us, though, is how far do we want that to go? And whether we think there's a chance in future, and again, I stress, not this year or next year, but 20 or 30 or 40 years into the future, where China or another Asian great power might seek things of us that we really don't want to give up. Mm. If that happens, if we don't have the capacity to stand up to a great power like China without the backing of another great power like America, if we want to be able to stand up to a great power like China independently, 
which is what a middle power does, then we're going to have to have both the diplomatic and the military resources to do so. And my argument in the book really is if we want to have that kind of middle power capacity to resist pressure from a great power on issues that really matter to us, then we're going to have to build armed forces which are bigger and more capable and very differently structured from the ones we have at the moment. A couple of times you've alluded to America as being the great and powerful friend of Australia. Is there another great and powerful friend out there that could take America's place? I mean, we've got quite a lot in common with Japan. They could be our great and powerful friend. Indonesia is not only well-positioned strategically, but they could also be a great and powerful friend, especially given how their their population could hopefully drive their economy in the future. So other options out there. It's a really important question, Matt. And it's one that goes very deep into that sort of aspect of the Australian psyche that we talked about before. That is that Australians have always had a great affinity for the idea of looking for a great and powerful friend. And, you know, we had Britain and when Britain faded away, suddenly America appeared and uh, we it's picked like up... mateship on a global scale. It, that's isn't exactly it? <laughs> right. But I do think it would be a big mistake for Australia to presume that if and when, as I expect they will, America drops away, there'll be another great and powerful friend ready mm. to take their place. The key factor there is a very simple one, and that is how confident can we be that a great power like Japan, for example, or India, which is also another interesting case, would feel that they had sufficient in common with Australia, that their interests were closely enough aligned with Australia for them to be willing to sacrifice their relationship with China to solve our problems. Because that's what it would cost them. It's not just a matter of, you know, having meetings between ministers and prime ministers and signing press releases and all this sort of thing. An alliance only works and lasts if the two sides are so committed to one another's security that they're prepared to pay very high costs. In this case, the costs of maintaining their own good relationship with China to support us when our relationship with China goes bad. And I think there is simply no reason for Australia to assume that either Japan or India, both of whom will have very important interests and equities in their own relationship with China, will put our interests in a conflict with China ahead of their own interests in maintaining those good relations. And it's worth bearing in mind that's true the other way around. Australians are often quite enthusiastic about the idea of seeing Japan, for example, as a close ally of Australia's against China. But would we be willing to sacrifice our relationship with China in order to support Japan in a conflict with China over the Senkakus, for example? Would we turn our back on our most important trading partner to help the Japanese defend a handful of uninhabitable rocks and reefs? I don't think so. I'm very pessimistic about that. Indonesia, though, as you mentioned, is a very special case because Indonesia is a potential great power. I think it probably will be a great power in in Asia. And this is one of the other huge changes that's happening. We talk a lot about China and we're right to because it's a vast story. But Indonesia in its own way is just as big a story. Very credible estimates are that that Indonesia will become the fourth biggest economy in the world well before the middle of the century. Mm. We've dealt with great powers before, though never great powers as as mighty as China's heading for. But we've never dealt with a great power right next door. And this will be a big change for us. And Indonesia is a country that holds both great potential threats and great potential opportunities for us. Because it's right next door to us, it's the only great power that has the capacity to launch a serious attack on Australia from its own territory. And to that extent, Indonesia poses a more serious potential strategic threat than more distant powers like China, simply because it's closer, if its power grows. On the other hand, because it's close to us, there's a stronger possibility that our strategic interests will be aligned. Whereas we were saying before, Japan or India may well not find that their interests in supporting Australia overcome their interests in 
in a good relationship with China. But because Australia and Indonesia are so close, it's more likely that what threatens Indonesia would threaten Australia, or that what threatened Australia would threaten Indonesia. So there's a more natural close convergence of strategic interest. Therefore, it's the case that Indonesia has both, this is a line from an old strategic policy document of the 1990s, has the characteristics both of a strategic asset and a strategic liability. Mm. Now, if we can make an alliance, not a formal alliance even, but just a sort of a general sense of alignment of strategic interests with Indonesia work, then that will be enormously to our advantage. And quite an important part of the defence posture I describe in the book is to make sure that whatever we do to build a defence force to defend our own continent will also give us options to support the defence of Indonesia and the other islands in our immediate neighbourhood. That's a big part of the story. But at the same time, we can't afford to assume that Indonesia is going to be our ally because as a close neighbour, there's lots of reasons for us to disagree and our history as two countries together, the history of our relationship, has to put it mildly, had a lot of ups and downs. Mm. Okay, um... One final thing that comes to mind then is making the current situation better. Yeah. And this is, again, a hypothetical. What if Scott Morrison decided to be more proactive when it came to the relationship between China and the US? Yes. Essentially like President Moon is between yes. Kim Jong-un yeah. and Donald yes. Trump. Yes. I'm the middle one with no skin in this game. I can speak your language. I can speak your language, although we're there we could speak China's language in that scenario would be debatable, but... Yeah, Kevin Rudd could have. Uh, well, I, I didn't mean literally, <laughs> but, uh, but do you think that there's a, a role there for yeah, Australia as a, the peacekeeper? Look, it's a really important question, Matt. A few years ago now, in 2012, I published a book called The China Choice, Why America Should Share Power, mm. which argued that the best outcome for Australia, given that America wasn't going to be able to preserve its leadership in the region, the best outcome for Australia would be one in which the US and China agreed to share power. So America continued to play a strong role in Asia, even as China's role in Asia strengthened. So there was a sort of an equalisation between them. And I said that Australia should go out there and try and promote this idea. Uh, Sorry, what year was that book in? That was 2012. How have we gone? Not so well. (laughs) Um, And, you know, this is a self-serving way to put it, but I think actually facts are borne out the basic argument I was making. That is that that if we weren't careful, we'd have escalating rivalry between the US and China and we couldn't assume America would win it. Well, we have seen rivalry escalate and we have seen China grow faster than we expected. We have seen America's position weaken faster than anyone expected and particularly now amplified with Donald Trump. And so I do think we're now in a position where you know, we really need to go back to the idea and ask, is there anything we can do to slow down the process whereby America's power and influence in the region shrinks and China's grows. I think there is probably. I'm very pessimistic that we could get that sort of power-sharing, conservative Asia model, which I was describing in the China Choice book. But I do think there's a lot we can do to discourage the United States from trying to launch a new Cold War against China, Mm. because I think the chances of them winning that are very low. And we've just begun to see the beginnings of that with some of the things that Scott Morrison has been saying just recently. It's been quite striking that Scott Morrison has not endorsed the American description of China as a strategic rival. He has not signed on to the new Cold War between America and China. And he's actually distanced himself quite clearly from the things that a lot of people in Washington are saying about China as a strategic adversary. And so perhaps he's beginning to try and develop for Australia a kind of an intermediary position. Now, it's worth being clear what that means and what it doesn't mean. I don't think Australia ends up as a go-between. I don't think Scott Morrison is going to end up doing shuttle diplomacy, flying backwards and forwards between Washington and Beijing, brokering a deal himself. But what he can say to America 
and what he can say to Beijing, but I think particularly in Washington, because they are in the end, after all, still our allies, is to say, look, don't imagine that you can win a Cold War against China by containing it the way you contained the Soviet Union, that countries in Asia are not going to align with you against China the way the countries of Europe aligned with you against the Soviet Union in the 1940s and early 50s. And one reason for that is that China is just terribly important to all of us. Mm. And it's a message that Americans really need to hear, that the assumption that all of us in Asia are only too eager to cling on to the United States and support the United States in taking China on in a containment strategy is simply not right. And if when Morrison goes to Washington in a couple of months' time, he can convey that message effectively to his hosts, he'll be just beginning to play the kind of more constructive middle power diplomacy role that your question envisaged. Mm, mm. I would kind of be surprised if it came up to that amount of depth. I I would myself. I don't think he's anything like that kind Mm. of Australian political leader. Some Australian political leaders could have done it. I don't think it's going to be this one. So 2012, you were saying maybe some sort of power sharing arrangement is viable. 2019, you're saying, okay, maybe we should think about building up our defence force a bit. If we're sitting back here in five years' time recording another episode of Asia Rising, what do you think your book's going to be about? Because I I hate to say it, but it seems like you're becoming more pessimistic about our situation. Yes, look, I am, Matt. That's quite right. Back in 2012, I thought there was a reasonable chance, not a very big chance, but a reasonable chance that America and China could reach an agreement whereby the United States would remain a significant player in Asia in the longer term. Now and, you're circling the wagons. And, and, now, and now I'm saying I think we can no longer mm. plan on that. And that's why I've written this book, because I, because the natural conclusion is, well, if we can't rely on the United States remaining a significant power in Asia, if we do instead have to ask ourselves, how can Australia hold its corner in an East Asia and the Western Pacific dominated by China, then along with a whole lot of diplomatic stuff, which is not what my book's about, but it's not that I don't think it's very important, but along with all that diplomatic stuff, there are very big implications for our our military and our capacity to build that kind of middle power military posture that we talked about before. And so, no, I, I, I am more gloomy. And what's more, we don't have very long to make that decision. So maybe if we come back together in five years' time, one of the questions will be, have we left it too late? To adapt. I don't think today, in 2019, it's too late, Mm. but we will need to make really big changes to the way we think about our armed forces, to the kinds of forces we're building, to the kind of money we're spending, the way we're managing them. We'll have to make really big changes quite fast if the opportunity to build those forces is not going to pass us by. And perhaps in the meantime, just hug the panda a bit harder. Well, I don't, put it this way, be very self-conscious about the fact that as we're dealing with China, we're dealing with a country of immense power and influence, and by all means, disagree with them where it really matters to us. Mm. But don't imagine that we can disagree with China on things at low cost. For a long time, it's been easy for Australia to assume that we can define the terms of our relationship, even with very powerful countries like China, because we've got America at our back. I don't think we can assume that any longer. So we're going to have to deal with China the way smaller middle powers have always dealt with great powers, that is, with great caution and circumspection. All right. Thanks very much for your time today. That's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast in SoundCloud, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and a multitude of other podcasting platforms. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. 